And so we started off the first week we talked about observation. Last week we talked about interpretation with uh, looking at the historical and the literary context of things and, um, and uh, finding the overarching theological purpose and consulting the biblical map and stuff like that. Um, and today we're bringing it all together into application, uh, which is a pretty big deal actually. Um, let me see here. Let me get this going for you. So, haha, application. Um, and the reason why I, why we want to know how to study God's word and teach it faithfully uh, is really kind of like the key verse that I've grabbed onto for that is Colossians 1.28, where it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And this is the purpose, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And it's kind of one of those things where you have to define maturity more than just uh, knowing a lot about the Bible. I think that's something where it's like, well, uh, that person, I've, I've talked to new believers, especially where they're like, like, oh, I just don't feel like I'll ever be spiritually mature. And what they mean is that um, I don't feel like I know that much about the Bible. I don't, I haven't been in church a long time. I haven't, I, I don't know all these things. And usually what I tell them in that is, is, hey, spiritual maturity isn't just Engaged on your knowledge of things. Like if you, when you read the Bible, if you read the Bible, understand what it says and then seek to apply that in your life. Like if you let the word of God actually change you into where it like changes, like who you are, the way you think, the way you feel, the way you act, like that is spiritual maturity. That's, that's way more mature than somebody who just reads the Bible, stores away a bunch of knowledge, and then nothing about them changes. Like they just kind of keep going and doing what they want to do. That That's actually a, an immature person, like a spiritually immature person who might know a lot, but they don't actually, they like the word of God hasn't, they haven't allowed it to change them, you know? So um, we teach so that we can present people mature in Christ and application uh has to be a part of that helping people take what they've understood in the scriptures and apply it to their lives uh, is a really big uh, is a really big deal it's necessary in helping people grow uh, as as believers and so um, as we talk about application another word we, we use this in the first week I think it was another word for that is contextualization and that's simply just communicating in ways that are understandable and appropriate to the listeners context. And so this can, this can take into account um, maybe a, a cultural thing where you, you might be in just a totally different part of the world. There's, uh, you might go on an overseas trip like that. Uh, this honestly, though, can be as simple as like, um, if, uh, if, if you're speaking in front of, um, say, like 514 or Ignite, like Candeo's youth, uh, that's something where contextualization is really important because believe it or not, a middle schooler's world is for all intents and purposes, very different than yours. And so, uh, the way that you try to make those connections, um, for 13 year olds is going to look a lot different than you might for one of your peers or for somebody older. And so illustrations that you use, um, and even connecting points on how this text like practically uh, applies to their particular situation, uh, makes a difference. So we need to consider the, um, the listener's context in this. And so, um, and the reason for this is because at the end of the day, uh, exegetical and theological discipline, ultimately exist to serve the people that we're leading and teaching. And so this is where uh, part of any sort of teaching context isn't just to 
um, isn't just to show how smart you are, right? And it isn't just to show how much you've learned. And it, it isn't to uh, to be theologically rigorous for the purpose um, of anything other than what ultimately serves uh, the people that you're leading and that you're teaching. Because if at the end of the day, it's not like landing on the ground, um, we, we've failed as teachers. We might have succeeded as scholars or as students, but we failed as teachers because if nobody's learning, you're just talking. You're not actually teaching anything. And so we want to make sure uh, that it's actually uh, what we're doing is actually serving the people that we're leading and teaching and that it, that it's actually uh, that we're, we're connecting the dots on how does this magnificent truth actually translate into affecting the reality of the context of the people that we're talking to. So um, one of the things uh, that is really important in all of this uh, as you as you begin to prepare a message or prepare a Bible study is that ultimately God is more interested in developing messengers than messages than messages. And because the Holy spirit confronts us primarily through the Bible, we must learn to listen to God before speaking for God. And this is really one of those things where, um, uh, you, you can't lead people where you haven't already gone. And so, uh, this can get, uh, real tricky, especially if you're, if you're studying a particular passage of the Bible to teach it, uh, it can be really easy to go, okay, what do they need to hear? What do they need to hear? And you start using pronouns like they and them and, uh, and you, you know, and what we need to first do as we're studying the scriptures, as we're studying our passage is we need to go, what do I need to hear from this? And this isn't, I'll say, I'll say this way. We need to not remove the devotional aspect out of our study of scripture. Uh, we want to go deeper than just a maybe uh, surface level devotional reading of something, but we have to understand that this text needs to actually hit home for us. It needs to actually affect me as a teacher. Uh, if I, if I'm to expect that I can actually teach this to somebody else and say, Hey, this is really important. Like if you understand this, this will have this effect in your life. It's really hard to say that if it, if it hasn't also had an effect in your life. So an example of this. Um, so this morning where we looked at the parable of, of the prodigal son and the, what, like a big part of that parable is actually the older brother and the God didn't just run towards the reckless. He also pleads with the self-righteous. And so we, uh, I, I talked about like, you know, you have an older brother's heart when and had several different kind of phrases like that. Um, well, it was so fr not frustrated. It was good. <laughs> but on last Tuesday, uh, before I'm about to go home, I think it was Tuesday. It was Tuesday last Tuesday. Um, I'm studying for the message that I gave this morning. Uh, prodigal son, younger brother, older brother. I was specifically studying the older brother part of that passage on Tuesday. Before I came home from work, I got an email uh, that I don't know that I've been that angry in a while. And, and it was, it was, I can't go into what it was, but uh, it was an email from a person and they, uh, they were, they were sinning against, me and sinning against our church. I'll just say it that way. Um, and I got, I got really angry about their sin. Uh, so much so that, that in my mind, I specifically remember reading the email, just like fuming. I, I even went over to Cody's office and just ranted for a little while. Uh, and I remember in my mind thinking I would never do something like that. 
and it was it was one of those things where I was like, oh my gosh, like I've just been studying this older brother heart, which you know you have an older brother heart when you say, I would never sin like that. I would never do that. It was like, okay, all right. Like it, it hit me square between the eyes, you know? And it was such a beautiful thing though, because uh, it's something that I needed to not just study in the text, but it was like, that text had to affect me in that moment. It had to like hit the ground, like rubber had to meet the road. And I had to recognize like, I'm having an older brother heart right now. Like I'm, I'm diminishing the magnitude of the grace of God by elevating my own sense of self-righteousness. Like I had to, I had to really wrestle with that. Um, and so that's just an example of like, hopefully it doesn't have to come in the form of something that smacks you upside the head like that. Um, but seek to see like, how, how does this text seeing what it says, how does this like actually affect my life? Um, before you try to just constantly, like before you just jump to turning around, like how does this need to affect everybody else? And maybe you can't actually see how it should affect you yourself. So, um, before we proclaim the message of the Bible to others, we should live with the message ourselves. That's kind of what um, we've been talking about this whole time here. So uh, uh, I should have changed this heading here. It's actually, it's not three questions for application. It's five. So um, let me see here. So five questions for application. All right. When you're thinking through, um, it, whether it's in your own personal Bible study or as you're preparing a message, uh, we need to think through these kind of uh, five frameworks in thinking through, okay, how does this text apply uh, to me and how does it apply to the people that are listening? So uh, first we want to ask, what does this passage teach me about God? Um, and there's, there's some arrows here that might be helpful for you uh, as you think through this. So um, what does this message what does this passage teach me about God? So that that vertical arrow is like, okay, how should I view God in light of this passage? And then the next question we'll, we want to ask is, how does this aspect of God's character change my view of people? And so what does this passage tell me about God? Because the Bible is ultimately a book about God. It's not a book about me. I have to start with what does this passage show me about who God is, the character of God, the nature of God, how God has worked, how he has acted, how he has spoken, um, stuff like that. And then how does this aspect of God's character change how I view other people? And so, for example, uh, as I'm studying the parable of the prodigal sons or the lost sons, prodigal is not even the right, right word for that. I didn't even get a chance to go into that in the message, but, um, the parable of the lost sons, uh, is what does this tell me about God? It tells me that God is uh, gracious and loving, uh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I mean, you can look at other parts of the Bible for that. Um, uh, quick to run to the reckless lost and also quick to go to the self-righteous. Uh, and so what is this aspect of God's character? How does that change my view about people? It equalizes the playing field. It's like, I am no better than the reckless lost in my own self-righteousness. And so that's kind of how that, uh, how that goes. So then what does this passage demand of me? And so 
kind of in this running example of my own uh, self-righteous failure here, uh, this passage demands that I change the way that I view myself and that I change the way that I view this person who sent this email, that it brings me down to a lower status, like that I, that I not think too highly of myself. It's like, yeah, I actually could uh, sin that way. Uh, I am capable outside of the grace of God. I am capable of committing every sin that I could possibly imagine. So bring myself down and looking towards this other person as an image bearer of God in need of God's grace, who apart from God's grace uh, is just as bad as I would be apart from God's grace. And so my response to them shouldn't immediately be anger. It should immediately be love and compassion in the same of following in accordance with the heart of the father who runs toward the reckless loss. So how does, what does this passage demand of me? It changes the way I think about myself. It changes the way I think and act towards other people. And then, so how does this, uh, yeah, I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand. How does this passage change the way I relate to people? And then finally, and I really love this aspect of this wasn't really part of my application framework until fairly recently. Um, but what does this passage prompt me to pray to God? Um, I love I love how uh, how an application to a text uh, an element of that can be a, a change in in how you pray. Uh, it, it's it's one of those well duh things. It's like we talk about studying the Bible, like before we approach a path, before we approach a text in, in any form of Bible study, whether you're you know wanting to teach or whether you're just studying it personally, uh, pray, ask God to show us, uh, to reveal himself to us in the scriptures and ask the Holy Spirit to show us what this means since he wrote it in the first place. It's only appropriate if we begin our study of the Bible with prayer that we end uh, in application of the scriptures with prayer as well, asking God uh, to, to show us how we ought to pray in light of everything that we've seen. And it also uh, forces us from, we kind of talked, I think it was, uh, it was either, it was either last week or the week before that, we talked about the, the merely imperative form of, of teaching where you only hit on the action steps. Well, when you, when you when you end when you at least ask the question what does this passage prompt me to pray to god it it filters every like imperative command every action like like practical action step that you would take it forces you to filter it through the grid of being a spirit empowered person um, where I'm not applying the scriptures. I didn't understand the scriptures apart from the strength of God through the Holy Spirit. And I can't apply the scriptures apart from the strength of God through the Holy Spirit living in and through me. And so um, I think it's a small tweak, but it reframes the way that we understand the scriptures when it's like even the most explicit imperative commands uh, that are in the scriptures have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit uh, as we walk. So um, those are, those are kind of five questions. The, uh, what does this passage tell me about God? What does this passage tell me about man? How does this passage, what does this passage demand of me? How does this passage change the way I relate to people? Sorry for the typo there. And what does this passage prompt me to pray to God? Okay. So side note, the reason why periods are finding their way into my, my keyboard is messed up. It, it's been inserting periods wherever it's, wherever it's wanted. And that's made writing anything. It used to do double B's. So it would like capital B lowercase. You don't care about my keyboard malfunctions, but 
I felt the need to justify that. Okay, so there you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, and I'm not lying about that either. Okay, I promise my keyboard's putting periods wherever it dang wants. All right, so uh, the next thing, as we think through application, um, this has been really helpful. Doctrines must be taught practically and duties doctrinally. Here's what that means. Um, sometimes I, uh, when you read the scriptures and we think of application, a lot of times what we, the only thing we think of is, um, what do I do with my hands? Like what, how would I say it? What do I physically do? How do I physically respond to this? Okay. Um, that that's one level of application. Like an application could be, I need to walk over to my next door neighbor's house, introduce myself to them and share the gospel with them. Like that is a, I am physically doing this. Okay. Um, that's one thing. Like that's one way for application. Uh, if you're, if you're only looking for application, uh, as being, what do I physically do? Um, you're going to have a really one dimensional, uh, version of application because what we see in scripture is uh, a a developing disciple of Christ will love the Lord their God with all their heart soul mind and strength they'll love the they'll love the Lord their God with their heart with their emotions uh, and so when I think through application I go how should this text affect the way that I feel I'm supposed to love the Lord my God with all my heart how should this text affect how I feel uh, Love Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. I, I interpret soul in this kind of framework as being like the depth of those emotions. Um, so how should I feel? Uh, what's the nature of that feeling? How deep should that feeling be? Um, heart, soul, mind. So what should I feel? What should I think? Uh, how does this text affect the way that I think? Because the reality is, is that orthodoxy informs orthopraxy. What we believe affects what we do. You see, like we we are always acting out of our beliefs, whether we whether we identify it that way or not. We're always acting out um, of what we actually believe, right? Like, um, if 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 somebody's like like if I don't stop eating uh, garbage, I'm going to have a heart attack and die. Um, but then they keep eating garbage. They either don't they don't actually believe that they're going to have a heart attack and die, or they don't actually believe that it's the garbage that will make that happen. Like, like we always do what we actually believe. And so, what is this pass? How should this passage inform the way that I feel? How should this passage inform the way that I think? Uh, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like, how should this passage inform the way that I act? Inform what I do with my body, uh, which is informed by my emotions and it's informed by my thoughts. And so that's kind of the framework that I think through um, in, uh, in, how, in how to think through application. And so part of this is doctrines must be taught practically. What this means is that sometimes uh, the, the focal point of a passage is, uh, is very doctrinal in nature. There, there may not necessarily be a lot of uh, real like imperative commands, like stop doing this and start doing this. It may be like, um, um, I, I keep going back to the assault message in Ephesians, but this it, it makes a lot of sense here where it's really a doxology. It's really uh, the Apostle Paul 
putting forward these great doctrinal truths. Uh, and there's very little like explicit imperative commands to necessarily do anything. It's just, he's describing the nature of our salvation. Um, what we need to do in those instances when something is, you know, very doctrinal in nature, we still need to think through how do we help people connect uh, why understanding this matters and how understanding this actually connects to their life. And so part of that message was um, these great doctrinal truths of, of God having chosen you, having redeemed you and having sealed you uh, all based on his own divine initiative should uh, instill within you a tremendous sense of rest, knowing that your salvation doesn't hinge on the strength of your choice, but it hinges on the strength of his. And so helping people see this is a big doctrinal truth that, that Paul, let's say Paul is laying out. And here's actually how that, how if we understand and grasp this doctrinal truth, here's how that will practically translate. You will, in this instance, you, you ought to be, uh, uh, not angsty in your soul about losing your salvation, right? And so helping people make those connections. Um, so that's doctrines must be taught practically and duties doctrinally. Sometimes you will get into passages where there are lists of things, right? Where it's like, do this and don't do this. In those instances, we have to teach those imperatively. And it's like, because that's what scripture is teaching. Um, when it says, teach duties doctrinally uh essentially what you want to do in that instance is uh, here's here's both what the bible says to do and here's uh here's why the bible is saying to do that here's here's the why behind the what uh, and this is where consulting the biblical map can be helpful um helping people not just think imperatively like well i'm just going to do this and the only reason i'm going to do it is because the bible says to do it Side note, that is a good enough reason to do something, even if you don't understand the why. Like the fact that it's in scripture is a good enough reason uh, to be a fuel for obedience. It's helpful, though, to give people a little bit more of a robust reason behind imperative commands than necessarily just that the Bible says to do it, um, but to show them uh, how this connects all throughout scripture, um, stuff like that. So, um, how we think through application, observe principles in the text. Uh, uh, what did I mean to write there? Observe how the principles in the text address the original situation. Again, this is where your historical and literary context um, is really important. So uh, if, if there's a real explicit way that, that the original reader would have applied this to their situation, um, learn what that was like here's how they would have applied this in their in their culture and in their day and then discover a parallel situation in in the contemporary context and so is there anything um even though we don't live in the first century here's how they would have here's how they would have heard that and here's how that would have have informed what they thought how they felt and what they did are there any parallel situations today um that aren't exactly like like what they were experiencing, but are similar that I can help like connect the dots for people uh, in the context that I'm talking to. So um, I'm flying through here, but make your application specific. Uh, as much as you can, I put an asterisk here because uh, be as specific as you can without being overly exhaustive um, without or without creating an overly exclusive list of possible applications. 
okay? Um, applications vary from context to context. Meaning is the same, applications vary. What's helpful when you're teaching the Bible isn't to try to think of how could, what's every single way this could apply, but try to think of types of uh, kinds of ways that this could apply. And so, because uh, it leaves it, a, uh, how do I say it? It leaves it more open-ended where it's like, this could apply in these ways to like give examples of how this applies, um, but to do it in such a way where you're not saying like, this is the only way that these apply or that this applies, if that makes sense. Um, so uh, be laser focused and specific concerning the root cause of the application and then broaden it out to address the fruit. So we're talking root, and fruit. Okay. Um, I, I don't feel like I explained that well, but like, uh, yeah, feel the freedom and the obligation to give examples of how a text applies, but don't get so narrow focused on your examples um, that people begin to think that that's the only way they could apply it. I guess that's how I would say it. Uh, we're, we're rounding the corner here, so we're almost done. Um, let's see. So how... Uh, how to be specific in your application. So, so you say, okay, so be as specific as you can without creating an overly exclusive list. How do, how do I think through being specific in my applications? Um, first one's consider your audience. Uh, again, you're going to, you're going to talk to a group of high schoolers differently than you'll talk to a group of college students differently than you talk to a group of adults. And even with adults, you'll, it's like, are they, are they, do they, are they newly married? Are there single people mixed in with married people? Are these like, like people with kids? Are these, you know, empty nesters? Like who, who is your audience? And that, that matters in the way that you think through how to help people apply your, uh, your scripture to their particular situation. Um, uh, press for clarity in the organization of your thoughts and materials. Um, one of the things, uh, let's see if I get to, um, <laughs> I was just listening to a podcast recently and, uh, I think it was with HB Charles. Um, I think it was in the, uh, uh, teach me how to teach the Bible podcast or whatever it was gospel coalition. Um, one of the things he said, uh, was, and I, I've done this before, which is why I laugh is that there's kind of like, like he's like the cardinal sin of, of, uh, of teaching application is to get, is to get all the way to the end of your message and to say, let's pray to the Lord for him to help us know how to apply this to our lives. Like <laughs> it's kind of, and, and what he was saying was like, that's like an easy cop out for like, I actually didn't do the work and thinking through how to help you apply this. And so I'm going to like, uh, put the Holy Spirit on the spot and make him do it kind of thing, which in one sense is true. The Holy Spirit always, always has to help us apply it. In another sense though, it's like, um, <laughs> it can be easy if you get to the end, you're like, I actually don't know how this applies, but I'm sure it does somehow. And I just got to hope that God will show them how it does. Right. Like we, we want to be a little bit more clear than that. And we want to be a little bit more specific um, than that. So press for clarity in the organization of your thoughts and materials. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit um, next week as we talk through uh, the big idea and beginning to kind of form um, an outline and illustration, stuff like that. Uh, but there's a common thread where um, there, there's a saying, if, if it's a mist in the pulpit, uh, it's a fog in the pews. And what that means is 
that if, if there's not a whole lot of clarity in your own speech, uh, it's, it's that unclear times 10 in the minds of people because people like hear it through their own filters and their grids. And so if what you're saying isn't really all that clear, uh, what they're hearing is, is just that much more unclear. Right. And so press for clarity, um, in that. And so, uh, keep the application today rooted in the primary application present in the text. And so, uh, the application portion of a message or of a Bible study isn't the isn't meant to be the junk drawer uh, for how this could how this could possibly apply. Um, you still want to as as best you can keep the application for today rooted in the primary application present in the text. And so, if there is a really specific way uh, based on the context of the passage that the listener would have applied this text, um, stay as close to that application and do everything you can to contextualize that application today to find parallel scenarios of how that applies. Um, uh, so don't lose sight of the theological principle that came out of the text. Um, that'll help keep you rooted in your application. Um, choose the possible applications that most closely relate to the main idea of the text. There's a lot of possible applications. Choose the ones that are that are closest to the main idea. Um, uh, I don't think, let's see here. Yeah, I got a slide for that. So the, here's kind of the analogy for it. The further away a rung is on a ladder, the more foolish it is to reach for it. And you just know this, like if you've ever climbed a ladder, you know, you generally want to go one rung at a time. And so if the, if the main idea of the text is this rung, you want to grab the rung above it right? Like the, the one that's closest to it. You don't want to start reaching five or six rungs up, uh, even though it's like, oh, it's on the same ladder. It's like, you're starting to get away from the main idea of the text. Like, like here was just something interesting that you thought along the way, and you're trying to grab for that. And that's when people start to get hurt. Like, like grab the closer one. Uh, it'll make it a lot easier to understand. So application, consider your audience, consider the subsets of your audience. A lot of times what I do when I'm writing a message, uh, and, you, and you can do this when you're writing Bible studies as well, um, is to just make a list of your audience. Um, and so if, so like say for a Sunday, um, what I'm doing, I'm trying to think through, okay, um, who's, who's a new believer that I think will be there? And, I, and I'll try to think specifically by name, uh, like, like so-and-so is a new believer and they'll be there on Sunday. How would a new believer hear this and how would they uh, understand how to apply this? Uh, a, a, someone who's been a believer for a long time and I'll put a name down. Uh, someone who isn't a believer at all, an unbeliever that I know will be there on Sunday or could be there on Sunday. I'll put their name down and, and I'll have in my mind, like, how would they hear this message? How would they understand? Like, what would the application for them be? Uh, and how would they walk away? Um, with this text, uh, I'll try to think through like kids. How will kids hear this this message? How will um, how will teenagers and college students hear this message? That'll that'll begin to affect the way that you use illustrations and the the applications that you think of. Um, how how will I mean you you can even go outside of like like age categories. It's like okay, how how will women hear this text? How will people of different uh, ethnicities? hear this text that part of this is part of why um, 
uh, back to like the how will women hear the sex? Like I know about 50% of my audience on a Sunday will be women. I have to really care about the way that they, that women will hear and understand the things that I'm saying. And so every message with the exception of two, every message that I've ever given, I've given it first to my wife twice because one, I, I need the help, like making sure that what I'm saying makes sense. But two, I'm going, okay, you're a woman. You, you see the world differently than men do. What am I missing? Am I, am I saying something that uh, I'm unintentionally ostracizing women and maybe my illustrations? I very rarely use sports illustrations. Part of it because I myself don't identify with them. And it just, I don't know. I just, they don't make sense to me. And part of that is like, uh, most often if I've ever thrown one in there, Sarah's gone like, yeah, maybe, probably not. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, I'll throw that out, you know, and she'll help me filter through things. Um, but you can do that with, with different ethnicities as well. I remember there was a, there was a message back in the book of Exodus where we were talking about slavery um, and now slavery in the Bible is very different than slavery in, uh, that, than what slavery was in America um, in a lot of ways. But still, there are, there's a lot of connotations that you think of when you think of slavery. And so, so I, I tapped on the shoulders of a, of a couple African-Americans that go to Candeo and was like, hey, help me think through this. I, I want to be, be purposeful and careful in the way that I, in the way that I go into this text like knowing that this is, these are some of the connotations, like, like, what do you hear when you, what, what am I, what am I missing in my language? What am I missing in my explanation? Um, it's really just doing everything you can to be mindful of your audience. Um, and so that, that'll look different based on the different uh, context that you're, that you're teaching in or the people that you're with. Um, but thinking through that on the preparation side of things, uh, and you're going to, you'll, you'll inevitably at times um, end up saying something stupid and end up saying something that you're like, Oh man, I didn't think of that, of that audience. Don't, don't kill yourself trying to think of every possible thing. Um, but do everything you can to try to think through uh, who's making up your audience. So that's application. Um, eight thirty six. So like I said, it's one of the shorter weeks from a content perspective, but what questions do you guys have? Such a small class tonight, the faithful. <laughs> you mentioned earlier, um, like, just because something is like, okay, maybe. Okay. I'm just going off somewhere. Sorry. Um, no, you're good. How careful do you need to be in trying to determine, all right, this is a cultural, how do you determine between cultural then applications and applications for all of us? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of being able to see the difference between the two uh, will come out in your in your study of the historical context. Um, so, for example, uh, when you get into First Corinthians, um, there's a lot of talk about head coverings. Okay, this is one. Uh, 
I had a friend, Sarah, Sarah was discipling one of our friends. She's a new believer. They were going through first Corinthians, um, which is an interesting book to take a new believer through. Like that's her first book she read, but it was great. Fine. They got to the part of head coverings and Nicole uh, comes to Sarah. She's like, and this is such a beautiful heart to have. She was like, all right, I read this part about women having head coverings. Like where, where do you buy those? You know, like, where should I get those? I don't, like, she was immediately like, this is what the Bible says. I'm going to, I'm going to obey. I'm going to go buy some head coverings. You know, and, and it was so beautiful because I'm like, oh my gosh, that is like, I want that heart posture towards the scriptures where it's like, this is what the Bible says. I don't get it. I, I'll look weird all the time, but that's fine. I guess Amazon, like, I don't know. Do I Google that? And, <laughs> um, but what we were able to do in that was to help her go, um, okay, let, let, me, let me try to help you a little bit in understanding um, what, have, what head coverings were in the Bible, what they represented in, in that culture, um, and what a woman not wearing a head covering would have been communicating to the men around them. Um, it was it, essentially for a woman to not wear a head covering is basically like saying, uh, I, I have no other authority than myself. Um, and these were, these were married women. And so this would have been basically saying like, not just saying I'm not under authority, but I'm also not married. Like I'm single and ready to mingle. Like there, there was a level of, um, what could have been perceived as cultural promiscuity for a woman in a, in a church gathering and not wear a head covering. And so, uh, there, you, you start to get into like, um, like issues of, of modesty issues of, um, unnecessarily, uh, putting yourself out, basically introducing a distraction into the church gathering. Um, because, uh, because you've decided to, to express your freedom in Christ in a way, um, that was, uh, both unnecessary to the gathering, dishonoring to your husband and distracting to the gathering, uh, which is what the whole book of Colossians is talking about as it relates to spiritual gifts, the exercising of spiritual gifts. And it ex- the Colossian believers uh, abuse of their freedom to the distraction of the gathering extended even as far as what they chose to wear. And so that's where understand the historical nature of that where it's like, okay, for a woman to not wear a head covering that in that context um, is very different than uh, than the use of head coverings today. Yet the principle of being incredibly mindful that what you wear in the gathering of the church communicates something about you, something about God, something about how you see authority, uh, like all of those things, helping people see that where it's like, hey, you probably don't want to wear mini skirts to church um, or to, to a gathering of believers, like, because here's what that communicates. Now, again, this is where you can get overly specific. Uh, there was a time uh, in salt company's history where that extended as far as yoga pants, like somehow yoga pants were really simple. Um, I don't take it that far, but I do think there is a principle here um, where what, what we wear communicates something about what we believe about God and what we believe about others. And so to be mindful of that. So kind of a long answer to your question, Mick, um, how do you discern those two things? Uh, A lot of that will come in your study of the historical context. Uh, And more often than not, especially if you do your work on like understanding who the audience was 
and what their situation was. Uh, as you study through the the passages within that book or within that context, it should help you be able to see like, okay, these are actually really related and their context is a bit different, but here's the principle behind what was going on there. Um, it, it takes a lot of work though. It's, it's generally, uh, sometimes it's easily seen, but it often doesn't simply come through the reading of the text. You need to do some historical work on that too. So that's a great question though. Sure. Thanks. I got one for you, Jake. Yeah, Ryan. Uh, you kind of talked about clarity from the pulpit can seem a little fuzzy for maybe the person giving the message, but then mm -hmm. audience is even more fuzzy. I can definitely see where that can apply in many situations, but what are some practical steps you do like when you start applying or preparing for a message or for mm -hmm. a small group to make sure that you're being clear and that you're understanding as clear as possible and present as clear as possible before? Yeah. That's a great question. My, it's not a silver bullet, but if there was one, I would make it this one. Um, I'm a, I'm a manuscript guy. And so I type out word for word, everything I'm going to say. I found that if I can't write it clearly, I can't, I'm not, uh, if I can't write it clearly, I'm not going to be able to say it clearly because there's, almost no difference between writing and thinking. And so if my writing isn't clear, it's very possible that my thinking isn't clear, which is part of why I not only write out, like in an ideal world, if I was gonna say it this way, uh, I would say it like this. Um, that's part of why I write that out because I can tell while I'm writing something like, that makes no sense. I've used six commas in that sentence. Like that's not a clear sentence, you know? Um, I, I write it out so I can see that. And that's part of why when I, when I give the message to Sarah, literally all I'm doing is I'm reading through my manuscript. And so then she's hearing everything I've written as well. Um, cause it's kind of one of those things where it's hard to proofread your own stuff cause you know what you meant, you know? And so, uh, reading it to somebody else is kind of that second layer of clarity that is kind of in my process so that that way, uh, she can go, I think I see what you're saying there, but that was, that was clunky. Like that didn't make sense, you know? And, and usually I get defensive cause I'm like, I really like the way I said it, but it's like, now nah, you're right. If, if it wasn't clear to you, it's not clear. No matter how badly I want, I wanted to use that comma splice, you know? Uh, so those are kind of two things that I practically do to try to be as clear as possible. I force myself to write it out. And when I say write it out, I don't mean write it like you would write a paper. Uh, write it like you would say it, which is a is a discipline in and of itself, because especially for you who are in college or maybe you just graduated, like you're used to writing for professors. Um, you can't write that way for how you normally talk. So if you look at my manuscripts, uh, they are about as informal as you could get when it comes to something that's written. Uh, I start off sentences with and. I start off sentences with like, I don't use proper punctuation. I, it, it's like, it, it, it'd be a terrible paper, but it makes sense when you say it. Um, so, so long as you force yourself to write like you talk, uh, the writing process can still be really helpful in gaining clarity for what you're saying. And then 
your wife or someone close to you is a really good filter. So say that you have like a time where the group like misunderstood or like didn't take away the right key points that you're <laughs> translating. Like how do you go back and like try and fix that? Cause like, I don't know, you might not always have that time, you know, like a connection group or something. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> yeah. If, if you're leading a, a small group discussion, that the beautiful thing about that context is that it's much more of a dialogue. Um, the hard part with something that's, that's more like a sermon, that's more monologue in nature is that you generally don't get that kind of feedback until you're in connection group the next week. And you're like, that's not at all what I was talking about, you know, so, but if you're leading like a small group Bible study, um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of leeway because it's a discussion for you to be able to go back and clarify yourself. So I think especially in that aspect of like, if you're writing a, a group study and you're you're taking people through it. Um, one of the things that's just naturally helpful in that is like, you're almost able to clarify yourself along the way. Um, and so I would say like, you still want to push for clarity when you're, when you're preparing, you know, the study. Um, but the kind of safety net that you have in that context is that if for some reason people don't understand what you're saying, what you're asking, anything like that, you can, you can try to fix that along the way. Um, so that, that's probably what I would do. I'd, I'd try to be as clear as I can on the front end. If it seems like there's confusion in real time, I'll try to go, actually, like, here's, here's the direction I was, I was meaning to, to go with this, you know, kind of thing and give clarity that way. Uh, and it's kind of a fun opportunity, opportunity to uh, both grow and like, okay, they, I thought I was clear. They clearly didn't see that as clear. Like how could I change that for next time? Um, and it's, it's always, I don't know, sometimes it's fun to, to just totally fail in front of other people. Like, like so long as you're not super, you know, some of my favorite times are when uh, things go totally wrong. Cause it's like, we're, we're people like we're not perfect. And this is just a reminder that we all need Jesus. So yeah, great. That guitar string broke. That word came out wrong that I don't know. Like I mispronounced that. I don't know. Stuff like that. So try not to take yourself too seriously either. Uh, <laughs> I think you already do a good job at that Carly. So I don't, I'm not afraid of you. Like, being able to to redirect that in the right direction so <laughs> is, is there Kim, Kim Jong-un on your on your screen <laughs> yes just, yes it is and I got Vladimir Putin the cheeseburger there's Trump Oh my gosh. Putin in the Teletubby suit. And then I don't know if you can really see him, but there's a giant Obama head in the background. On oh, the I see his, I see his eye. Okay. That, that was, <laughs> that was great. Any other yeah. questions? Sammy wants to see who won the Super Bowl. <laughs> no, I literally have no preference at all. You don't, I don't either. Nope. 
I don't either. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you there. But jump on the Chiefs bandwagon, I suppose. Mm, there you go. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I'm yeah. guessing they're still playing. Um, and I'm like going into Taco Bell, doing the mobile order, and then they say my name, but my name is Go Chiefs Go. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm actually a Vikings <laughs> fan, but whatever. <laughs> um, I'm pulling up the – here we go. Um, okay, so next week uh, we're, we're transitioning now out of the uh, three-week, you know, how to study your Bible thing, um, which, which is vitally important for a class like this. Uh, don't, you know, try to skip through all this stuff. But next week uh, we're in the Robinson book, so you're out of the reading from the binder. You're into – the Haddon Robinson book, chapter two and chapter four. Um, and we're going to be talking about uh, uh, finding the big idea of the text and forming a, um, what we're going to call a through line. So one of the things that I do uh, for every message is I create a one sentence, uh, a, a, a one liner. Like it's, it's one sentence that describes what this text is about. And that is kind of like the anchor point for everything else that goes around it from a, from an outline and illustration standpoint. So we're going to, uh, we're going to talk about how do you find that, that big idea? How do you write that one sentence description? Um, it takes a lot of work actually to summarize a passage in one sentence. And so uh, hopefully uh, you'll walk away a little bit confused and a little bit helped. So there's a learning process for it here. So um, that's next week, but those two chapters in Robinson hopefully will be helpful. Um, Yeah. But if, if, if at some point you're reading a lot of the some of the Robinson book, um, if you really want to kind of nerd out on some of this stuff, it's a really practical book uh, just on um, communicate, communicating biblical truth in general. So uh, in your free time, which I'm sure you all have an abundance of, uh, you can, you can read the other chapters as well, but yeah, that's next week. Um, I will send out the, uh, the link, um, sooner than two hours before the class this week. I'm still getting used to this format. So thank you for bearing with me here. Um, but yeah, if you have any questions, shoot me a message along the way. Uh, the rest of you who are watching the Super Bowl. Hope you had a great time. Um, yeah. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for uh, taking time out of a, a culturally important night. I appreciate your attention here. So <laughs> we'll see you guys next week.